I know that when the the struggle or the, the mental difficulty uh, happens when things go wrong, I just know that's not something that I'm going to sit and pay a lot of attention to. And that's just something that I'm going to recognize that's there, and then I'm just going to move on. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of The Artist of Data Science. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram at The Artist of Data Science and on Twitter at Artist of Data. I'll be sharing awesome tips and wisdom on data science as well as clips from the show. Join the free open mastermind Slack channel by going to bit.ly.com forward slash Artist of Data Science, where I'll keep you updated on bi-weekly open office hours that I'll be hosting for the community. I'm your host, Harpreet Sahota. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. Our guest today has over a decade of industry experience as a data scientist and is a passionate learner who thrives in multidisciplinary team environments. He's a master of his craft who codes and owns machine learning algorithms from conception to production. He's earned a bachelor's degree in bioengineering from the University of California at Berkeley, a master's in engineering from the University of California at San Diego, and a PhD in bioengineering from Caltech. He's worked at companies such as Agilent Technologies, Opera Solutions, Lytics, and Teradata. During his tenure at Opera Solutions as an analytics manager, he built sentiment models, threat models, and worked in the domain of various online threat groups, including traditional and cyber terrorists, large corporations focusing on threat analysis for security and business ecosystems and news analysis. At Lytics, he worked on algorithms that detected vehicles, determined risky vehicle maneuvers, and detected risky driver behaviors in cabs. His continuous contributions were celebrated through the achievement of the Lytics Go Big Award for developing data visualization that enabled a clear communication of complex data analysis to the internal team, as well as current and prospective customers. At Teradata, he's currently a principal data scientist and manager leading the charge to modernize the customer experience by applying machine learning to customer support. So please help me welcoming our guest today, a man who wears many hats, a photographer, a singer, a scuba diver, and a data scientist, Dr. Brandon Quatch. Brandon, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be here today, man. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And thanks so much for the introduction there. It sounds so fancy, but you know, <laughs> I was doing these things so early on that it wasn't nearly what you would do if you were to do them today, right? Like threat analysis. Back then, it was just simple keywords. It was simple Bayesian. Like if I see this word more than 50 times, then hey, maybe that according to the data that would lead to a, maybe a threatening situation, things mm-hmm. like that. You know, And then the, the field has moved on so far since then. But uh, it's interesting yeah. that it sounds so fancy when you say it now, but back then working on it, it was just us trying to figure out like, oh, we got this data. What are we supposed to be doing with this? And starting out with the basics. I just want to say that the things that I express on this show are just my personal opinion and this is just an interview happening between me and uh, this program. And it doesn't represent any organization that I'm currently employed by or any organizations that I previously was employed by or or any groups for that matter. Uh, So, you know, just wanted to put that out there. This is just me talking, right? This is just data scientist to data scientist. 
Perfect, man, for sure. So you got into it a little bit, uh, but talk to us about how you first heard of data science, what drew you to the field, and maybe some of the struggles and challenges that you faced while you're breaking into the field. Okay, yeah. I mean, for me, there wasn't really much of a moment of breaking into it because there wasn't too much of a field when I started, right? So I, I did my PhD at Caltech and I was very experimental. We were taking uh, silicon wafers and we were trying to make them do things like duplicate DNA using microfabrication, things like this. Throughout the process, I was thinking there were a lot of setbacks that happened in the laboratory setting that wasn't didn't really reflect what I thought I was capable of intellectually, right? So, you know, maybe I would design a cool experiment, but by the time I did it, then something random would happen. Maybe I turned on the nitrogen tank, there's no more nitrogen. And everything's been thawed, everything's been prepped, and now it's like you've just lost a whole day's worth of work. And sometimes worse, sometimes uh, weeks or maybe even months worth of work because of that one moment when everything was ready to go, something happened that totally contaminated the experiment. And when things like that happen, and I kind of noticed, well, you know, I think I'm more of a, like a thinking person. I think I enjoy doing the math more than uh, the experimental stuff. So I started to look into sort of alternate careers that weren't so experimental. And, uh, you know, consulting was there. There were the... The legal path was there where legal firms would come in and say, well, I mean, maybe if you work with us reviewing patents and such for a few years, then you might go to law school after that and then become like a patent lawyer. And so then I was interested in all those, all of those things. And eventually I went into consulting. So it was uh, with uh, my first employer, Opera Solutions, now known as Electrify. And we just did consulting for a bunch of different companies a lot of different fields that you had mentioned before. And the title was called um, Senior Associate. That was just it. And it wasn't really called, I mean, even when I left, it was still called something like Analytics Manager. Uh, it wasn't Data Sciences. We never really called it that until, you know, probably that transition of when I left and went to Analytics when the title became Data Scientist. So what were, you know, uh, along the way, obtaining all these awesome academic credentials that you've had. Um, what were some of the, the struggles and challenges you faced uh, during that time? Yeah, yeah. So there's, I separate out my academic life and my uh, sort of working life, although they don't really separate all that much, but I, because in my mind, I think of them as separate environments and doing separate things. So a lot of the difficulties in my academic life had to deal with the fact that, you know, you make this commitment when you do the PhD, it's going to be like around five, maybe even seven years. And along the way, sometimes you wonder, it's a long time, right? You wonder, is this the right path for me? Did I make the right decision? Should I, uh, should I just go to work now? Should I get a master's degree and just, just go? Should I continue? And if I continue, how long is this going to take? And when am I going to, to graduate? And when, when is that breakthrough coming? Because you need you know, something like a breakthrough, either minor or major, for you to be able to publish and for you to be able to present to the, uh, to defend your thesis, right? So during this time period, there was a lot of, I'm sort of stuck and, I, and, I'm, and I'm trying to find my way out. And what can I do to uh, get the good results? And a lot of it, you know, with any science, it's, you don't have that much control over things. You do it, the result came out, and that's not what I expected. You do something else, that's not what I expected either, right? You do something, I, I know this is going to work. You do it, that's not what I expected either. And it just goes on like this for you know, many years. And that's, that's kind of 
the PhD process, right? That's, that's how you know that when someone gets a PhD, like they, they must have gone through a similar experience where it was years long. It was, you thought you knew everything coming in. Turns out you didn't. You learned a lot about what you can and cannot do. You learned a lot about perseverance and all throughout, you know, if you can make it out and have a nice sort of story to wrap everything around, then you've, you've done something sort of significant in terms of like a human endeavor. Right. So that's what I like about that. Uh, working wise, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the difficulties are, um, I would say career related. A lot of times as a data scientist, you're working, you're doing things and you're not quite sure if this is real data science. You're asked to provide some ROI models and say, well, how does that translate to dollars? How does that translate to time saved? Or how does that translate to new, uh, new customers that we have got or retention of, of current customers? And okay, you do that and it's really important to the business. And after a while though, you start to think, how come I'm not building any models? How come I'm not tuning any hyperparameters? How come I'm not doing any deep learning? Why aren't I thinking about whether or not I have the right number of leaves per tree in my random forest and things like this? And that's always a, str a struggle, not, not, not a big struggle, but it's something that I think about as sort of a difficulty and thinking, you know, how do I do this thing, which I think is what the future employers or what my career is asking me to do, which is build these models. And how do I balance that with what I need today from the, the, the directors and the VPs that say, well, how much money are you really saving us? Or how much money are you generating for, for us? How much fraud are you preventing from us? And, and it, it depends, right? Now you could be, you could be joining a project or a work stream or an industry that's very established, those metrics are all worked out for you. You just gotta go in, retrain the model with the new data and provide the analysis. And you know maybe things are a little bit more straightforward. Sounds like to me, right? Things are never as simple as, as they seem. For me, I've always been attracted to these newer fields, going into a company where they hadn't done any data science in this field. And so, and they have this data set and they think that it's, you walk in, the data scientist is going to walk in and build a model. But what happens is a data science comes in and says, well, what about this field? What does that mean? And they don't know. And you go around searching for people who know. And what about this field? Why is it this value and not this other value? And it turns out, well, the data is a little bit dirty. Hey, it turns out that people, ideally you would write, you would document things in the right way, but they didn't quite document it that way. Not everybody's documenting things consistently. So now all your labels across all of the uh, human actions that had occurred are not always consistent with each other. So you have little difficulties like that. I was laughing at that point, you know, about what field does this mean? Uh, we don't know. Why is it like this? Uh, yeah, we don't know. It's it's quite challenging working in, in environments where there's not a uh, established data dictionary for you to actually know what you're working with, right? Are you an aspiring data scientist struggling to break into the field? Well, then check out dsdj.co forward slash artists to reserve your spot for a free informational webinar on how you can break into the field. That's going to be filled with amazing tips that are specifically designed to help you land your first job. Check it out. dsdj.co forward slash artists. So, so you mentioned all this cool new stuff that you want to be working on. Where do you see the field headed in the next, uh, say, two to five years? 
Yeah, you know, I, I've thought about that a lot. And I'm not really sure myself because two to five years ago, everyone was saying that this automation was going to come in, that this building the models, the models were going to build themselves. They're going to tune themselves and all this. And I was, and it made sense to me. A lot of the things that I was doing did seem pretty simple. You would build a couple of models, you would choose, uh, you would optimize in this way, you would choose this, you would do this parameter searches and yeah, you could, I mean, I was automating them too, right? I was writing scripts that would automate all this kinds of stuff. And I thought, yeah, this has probably got legs and this is going to happen. And so for the last two to three years, I was thinking the next two to three years was going to be about automation and that the data scientists would be akin to a modern, let's say, mechanical engineer who might've done studies in how to like in fluid dynamics, right? In how to model fluids and what's the pressure and velocity at every point along this swing but they have software for that. You you do the simulation and you're like, well, now I've got the software. So you're thinking, does that mean I don't need the engineer because the software did it automatically? We're, I think we're going to get to that phase. But the strange thing to me is that I've gotten the impression that that phase has coming, you know, very quickly for the last couple of years. So now, you know, here I am, right? Fast forward two years and it's not, I mean, it's kind of here. I've seen it here and there, but I'm, at least I'm still using Python. (laughs) I'm still coding things myself. And so I think that's what's going to happen, continue to happen in in the next few years, two to five years. That being said, you know, maybe the time will come when a lot of these uh, efforts to automate things uh, come into play. And, you know, as I mentioned before, it depends on the industry and, and the problem you're working on. In my career path, since I've always been working on new problems, I don't see it impacting as much, but I'm trying it, right? And some of the employers that I'm working for, they themselves are trying to build and have built these kinds of things. And I'm, I'm trying to use them as well. And I'm providing feedback on uh, the features that have been developed and, you know, what does it mean to work on a, like a real data science project where ROI is expected to happen and not just kind of a research thing. Can we automate away human judgment and human creativity for problem solving? Do you see that ever happening? I don't think that's ever going to happen. I, I think the issue is more of people who are thinking of automating things, if they're not practicing data sciences and haven't been building models on the ground level, they may not know about all of the human reasoning and intuition that goes into data science, right? They may, if you, if you ask the data science, well, what did you do? They might just describe it very mechanically. First, I took the data, then I did some cleaning. From there, I chose which variables might work the best. And I have a little algorithm for that. Then I got this model. Then I tried a couple of different models. And then maybe we combine the models together. Or maybe it's a machine vision thing. I took the images. And then I had to do some filtering on the images. Maybe I did some noise reduction. Maybe I kept it raw. Maybe I shifted it into a different uh, vector space. Maybe I kept it in the original. Maybe we did some sampling and some resizing. That sounds all very automatable, right? What I just said, I can, yeah, I can write a program for that. And that, because that's how we describe it. And so then other people would think, oh yeah, that's it. That's, I can write a program for that. But when you really are working on it day to day, all your decisions are in my judgment, in my gut feeling, should I do A or should I do B? Or the model's not performing well. And it could be 10 reasons or 20 reasons. Mm, which reason should I do first? Cause I only have time to look into two. So it's a lot of decisions like that. And then you got to think about, okay, I, I see some result here. I, I looked into this reason. Now, how do I explain what just happened here? 
in a way that's consistent with what we've been saying about the system all throughout the project. So, so there's we, that interpretation piece. As we move towards this new future where a lot of the stuff can be and most likely will be automatable, what do you think is going to separate the great data scientists from just the good ones? Yeah, I think it's just the, the ability to think through problems. Mm -hmm. Most of the stuff that we're doing is just thinking through problems, thinking through, I, I observe that things are or are not going the way I expected and thinking about why that is and what's the next best steps for that. And not just from a science perspective, but from a business perspective as well. It could be that the next best step is to talk to the business or the practitioners and say, maybe the way you're entering the data, we should enter it differently. Or maybe the way we're collecting the data, we should be collecting it differently. Or maybe the solution is on the science side, we should build the model a little bit differently. Maybe uh, we need some new parameters or we need a new structure, new architecture on how we're even building models. Uh, maybe it's on the engineering side. Maybe if we were to speed up the scoring process by a tiny bit, it would make a difference due to some other business factors on how business speed works. So just that intuition of thinking about what is the next step here. And a lot of that is stuff that you would learn academically, especially you know when doing a PhD, right? That's why a lot of data scientists you know, might have a PhD because during that process is when you're thinking about a years long project, what is the next best move here and playing that sort of reasoning game. So I think that's what it's going to separate, right? Now, if you came in and you just said, you know, I learned all the algorithms and I learned how to code things up. I know Python. I know how to code things up. I know TensorFlow. I know how to, and I've done some few projects, but you haven't really done a lot of this reasoning about what do we do now? Now that the results don't look right, what do we do? And that's not something that's often taught in schools anyways, right? In school, the problem works. You just have to figure out how to get it to work. But once you do that, now it works. There's not this curveball of, oops, uh, <laughs> turns out the data I gave you wasn't really that good. And we hadn't been collecting it well for the last two years. Although when we hired you, we kind of thought we did. And now do something about that. So it, it sounds to me kind of like the, the, the data scientists that are able to comfortably navigate the maybe are the ones that are really going to be indispensable to their organizations. Right. Right. Speaking of being indispensable um, to your organization, I um, wonder if you could talk to me about what it means to be an intrapreneur and how a data scientist can cultivate the qualities of an intrapreneur uh, within themselves and, and be one for their organization. Yeah. Okay. That, that, that's an interesting question. When yeah, I think of intrapreneurism as you're in a company and instead of saying, well, this is the way things have been done and you know, my job is just to rebuild the model and provide it the way things have been done. And in some environments, that's the right thing to do. An entrepreneur is somebody who comes in to a, a new business problem that says, we hadn't used data like this before. Okay. And we want to do something with it, but we don't know what. And you take on the mindset of, well, you kind of own this problem in the sense that if this thing goes well, everybody's going to know who were the original people who worked on this. And that would be good for their you know, career, right? Within the company and also outside of the company. An entrepreneur is somebody who thinks I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I'm supposed to be a data scientist, but here I need to do a lot of software engineering. Or here I need to do a lot of communication with the business people. Or here I need to do a lot of the operations, analytics ops, DevOps. I need to be monitoring the models. And when they don't look right, I need to be addressing that somehow and maybe automating that and getting everyone to work together. Uh, and you know, whatever it takes to, to get the, the, the MVP, because we're just starting now, right? So that's the minimum viable product, whatever it is to get the MVP out there so that we can show 
to the stakeholders, the people paying the bills, right? Th this is the value that we're, that we're bringing with the data. This isn't some notebook that I'm showing you. This is something that's in production and it's making things in real time. And to get to that point is, is difficult because there's a lot of sort of dirty work that you have to do to start something up when there's nothing there. There's no infrastructure. There's no team culture. There's no team. You got to hire the team. There's, you know, very, very little to start with, but it's your, your vision and your understanding and your feeling of ownership that, that drives you to be kind of an entrepreneur. And then you can also get your inspiration from, from entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs, right? I know that I, you know, I like listening to this on YouTube, right? Stanford classes on how to start it, how to do a startup, listening to entrepreneurs and how they started. They often give you little tips about thin slices, little tips about cornering markets where you might get a monopoly and you can bring that kind of a mindset, whether you're an entrepreneur that applies directly, right? And if you're an entrepreneur, you can bring that mindset as well saying, well, well, I'm doing this project within this company, but you know what? Three years from now, there's going to be a vendor out there that says, Hey, I'm doing the same thing. Or there's going to be another group within the company, another department that says, Hey, well, we're doing the same thing. Well, then how do you want to defend yourself against that internal competition as you go forward in the project as well. So it's just that whole mindset of, I'm not just an employee. I'm not just somebody who's doing this small task. I have, I feel ownership. Not that doesn't mean you, you do everything. That, that, that's not what that means, right? That means that you feel ownership. That means that you discuss these things with your partners, if you will, or coworkers, right? So I work with a business owner. I talk to that person about it. I work with a software engineer. I talk to that person about it. I work with uh, management executives and they represent sort of like investors, right? And I, and I talk to them about these things. Have you read the book Lynchpins by uh, Seth Godin? I haven't read that one, no. Check it out, Matt. I think you'll enjoy it. Um, Lynchpins, okay. Yeah, yeah. He talks, uh, about, talks a lot about entrepreneurship in that book. Yeah. Yeah. Just um, kind of the, the way you're describing everything, I, I think it would uh, really resonate with you. So if you get a chance, check cool. it out. It, it, it's, a bit, right. it's a bit older. It's a bit older, um, but it's a good book. I was on your blog researching you and I came across your leadership philosophy, which I absolutely loved. Uh, I was wondering if you could summarize that for our leaders. I'm sorry, for our listeners. Sorry, if you can summarize your leadership philosophy for our listeners um, and then maybe talk a little bit about how, how does trust play out in a relationship on a team? Yeah. I mean, trust is everything yeah, when it comes to leadership and when it comes to any kind of relationship, right? That's like a fundamental thing. Uh, and trust to me comes from your ability to not be scared of the results that come out of your work or anything that you do, right? Uh, if you messed up, you made a mistake, you're not afraid of that. You come up and you say, well, I was, I was hoping to do things this way, but I had made this mistake and I had done things that way. and you very kind of ca not casually, but you, you're, you're just not afraid of that. You're not hiding anything. You're not sugarcoating anything. You're just saying, well, this is what happened. And you get that just by having a good track record and a good relationship with your audience or who you're talking to, you know, maybe your bosses or something like that. Right. You do eight good things and then you make one mistake and it's totally understandable. So, I mean, that's the trust aspect and you, you trust other people and then other people will re reciprocate to you and then you can trust them too or you got to trust them. If there's any time when that's no longer happening, then, then the whole relationship has, you know, has a major flaw. Uh, when it comes to the rest of the leadership philosophy that I have, it's, you know, I'm big on, on servant leadership. I'm big on 
you're you're not the sort of boss, right? You're you're kind of the the shepherd or you're the helper. Somebody comes to you, and they don't even need they don't even you know sort of need to to listen to you. You might be formally okay the manager, or you might not be formally the manager. You might be a tech lead who doesn't really they don't really report to you, but you're sort of influential in the, in the area. And it's it's not about hey do things my way. It's about how can I help this person. To grow and to produce their best work. When you think of it that way, then you you start thinking about well, since they have a choice whether they can work with you or if they don't like you, they could just join another company, right? They can just say, here's my two weeks notice. I've I've got a better offer. You know, most of the times when a data scientist leaves a job, they're going to get a raise. So you know, you got to think about there's actually a, like a financial incentive for the people who report to you to just leave and report to somebody else, some other company, something like that. They'll probably get a raise from that. You got to think about when they are with you. It's a it's a privilege. It's a privilege for you. It's a privilege for them. We're in this thing together. How can you help them invest? How can you give them the tools to grow their career so that they want to follow you, right? Sort of voluntarily. They they, they want to go with you. Once in a while, you're gonna have to bring the insistence. That says, "Hey, I've been with you like 99% of the time, but this one time, I need you to do it this other way. I just know this is the right way to do it, right? And you're gonna call upon that one day, but that's not the everyday, right? Because you can't. If you try that with smart people like data scientists are, people who think independently, like the people who you want to be hiring, people who right have their independent judgment. At least for me, I hate being told what to do. I hate being told, yeah, do it this way. I'd rather be say, here's the goal, and you figure it out." And I would figure out, and when I do that, and then I feel good about myself, and I feel excited about the work. Like, oh, I'm totally going to do it this way. I have a good feeling this is going to work. You want to give people that feeling too, so that they then become excited. Now, another thing I talk about in terms of my leadership philosophy is about how people can judge you later on, right? Because as you go go along in your career, then I'm now in the position of people that I have formerly looked up to, and you know, I have an appreciation for what they had done, and I want the same thing. From the people who who follow me now or who I lead now, right? Because right now they may say, "Oh, this person's got more years of experience," or or what have you, and that's why I'm listening to this person's advice. But one day they they're gonna sort of grow up, so to speak, and when they're a manager in the future or a leader executive in the future, they're gonna be able to look back. And when that happens, that's not gonna have any impact on me, sort of professionally. By then, I'll be at a different place. Maybe who knows, right? But、uh, it's just like a karma thing. I don't want them to look back and say, "Oh, that guy, that person that I reported to way back earlier in my career, I kind of lost touch with that person, and maybe not in my life, or or maybe they are." But you know, I can judge them now. I can say, "Well, that that leadership, that mentorship, the guidance that I received, it was either it was either really good and helpful in these ways, but maybe it wasn't so good and helpful in other ways, and I would do it differently now that I'm in the same position." And for me, I just I just want that, even though it doesn't have an immediate effect on me. It's I want five years from now, ten years from now, anybody who reports to me or anybody who chooses to to listen to my advice and follow my guidance, that they would say, "I'm really glad that that happened, and I'm going to pass it to the next person." Right? And most of that comes with just that's what happened to me. I mean, I received good advice and I received good guidance, and, and you know, I feel it's sort of my job, my duty. To pass that on to the next generation, so to speak. Beautiful man, that's absolutely beautiful. 
Uh, yeah, you kind of want to be a multiplier of people, right? Like you, you want you want people who are reporting to you or working with you to become more after interacting with you, right? Definitely. So that's very, very beautifully put. Do you have any tips for, let's say, a newbie who joins a team? Um, what could they do to start building trust with their newfound team members and leaders? Yeah, yeah. It's just, I think it's just the, you're a newbie, you're allowed to make mistakes. Now we're talking fresh. Are you saying new to the career or we're saying just new to the company? Let's say new to the career. New to the career, right? Yeah, yeah. Then you're you're allowed you've got a lot of liberties, right? You're allowed to make mistakes. You're allowed to ask all sorts of questions. You just come out with the honesty and don't be afraid that you don't know as much as some of the more senior folks, right? Because that, that's totally expected. You've got a, li- a little bit of time here to ask any question you want to make a few mistakes. You go about your work, you do them, you report the findings as they are. You don't try to mislead or, or anything like that. And people will say, okay, this is good. You've done these things well. These other things you can improve upon. And, you know, in the next iteration, you should try to work on those things that you can improve upon. So the honesty comes from the fact that, hey, you've laid it all on the table here. Good, good, bad, or, or, you know, in neutral. And people can see that you've done that. Now, if you come and on the flip side, you say, oh, the work that I had just done, it's, it's perfect. It's great. No problems. And then, all right, great. And then two weeks later, maybe four weeks later, somebody else is in that part of the code or somebody else is using that, or we're making business decisions on that. And then at that time, we find out something's wrong. Then we're gonna go back and say, what, what just happened there? And did you, did you know that there was this bug or did you know that the, there was overtraining? Did you know the model was weak in this area? And if you say, oh, I kind of knew, but I didn't think it was a big deal. Or if you say things that sound like, oh, you knew and you didn't, you didn't tell us, it sounds like you, you know, maybe you hid it from us. And you, you don't have to be afraid of that at all because that's something that you're allowed to do you know, early on, especially now, the same rules apply later you know, throughout your whole career, of course, but especially early on, you, you have that flexibility. Awesome advice. Thank you. Um, kind of on that same blog post that I was reading, yours, uh, and you touched on this a little bit uh, just a few minutes ago here about how great thinkers abhor being told what to do. And I absolutely love that because I feel like as a data scientist, uh, we need to be able to navigate not with the step-by-step map of step-by-step directions, right? But more with the compass. Uh, And that may or may not be the point that you're making, but I was wondering if you could kind of expound on that concept for us. Why is it that great thinkers abhor being told what to do? Great thinkers like to figure things out and come to a point that they believe in the solution, right? Or or in the concept. If you are a great thinker, you'll, you'll look at, you know, side A, you look at counter arguments, side B, you look at this evidence, you look at that counter evidence, and you want to come up with some sort of a thesis that puts it all together. And that's a thesis that you believe in. And you feel like, oh, I can apply this thesis to a lot of different areas. And it's a fundamental truth. Like I've somehow simplified concepts into a few basic principles that I can, I can sort of go by. Every sort of decision or uh, that you make is, is a result of your thought. And in your head, you, there's this consistent model of how things are working. When somebody comes to a great thinker and says, yeah, do things this way, and the, and the great thinker doesn't believe in it, now you're asking to do something that they're not really used to, right? Like every decision you make from brushing your teeth in the morning to how you're going to do your models, you have a, you can explain it to yourself. You know, I'm doing this because of this, and I'm doing it because of that, and because of that, and because of that. You have this whole chain that goes back to some basic fundamentals. And that's your life. I mean, that, that's how you function. If you ask, hey, um, should I make decision A or should I make decision B? And you would, you would go through this whole process. 
if somebody says, you know, make decision B without you having to go through that, then that's a very funny thing. It's like, how can I do something that I don't like believe in? And this is the only time in my life when I'm asked to do this. And every other time I'm asked to do things that I feel sort of comfortable with. Like I've thought this through, I'm ready to defend these actions. If somebody should ask, why did you do this? I have an explanation. And I'm excited about that explanation too, because you're going to ask me a question. I say, I'm so glad you asked me that question because I've thought about that little detail that you, you had just asked me about, right? Whereas if it's something I was told to do, it's a very shallow understanding. Once you ask me about some details, I might, there's going to come to a point, you, say, you know what? I, I didn't think, think about that. I don't know. I was just sort of told to do it this way. You want to know why? Why don't you ask uh, so-and-so who told me to do it that way? And that, that's a very dissatisfying thing to, to say for, for people who are used to thinking through everything and having, having a comfortableness to decisions that are made. Yeah, because you kind of, by just accepting the direction that was given to you, you kind of give up some degree of autonomy, right? And I think it's that autonomy that, that you know, autonomy in conjunction with the mastery of your craft that makes what you do enjoyable, Right. Yeah, exactly. And then yeah. that's what you learn when you go through something like a PhD program, right? Mm -hmm. Or or if you don't do that, then it's something that you learn through the experience at, at, at work where you tried a bunch of things and uh, things didn't work out right. And then you learned how to navigate through this, right? And, and that process takes a lot, of, a lot of work and a lot of hours, whether it's at work or in academia. And you have to go through a lot of those cycles to build up this model and the, this mentality you might say this lifestyle, this way of thinking, uh, the idea that I'm going to try something and it may not work. And then I'm going to try this other thing and it may not work. And after five or six tries, maybe 10 tries, I now have a feeling about, oh, I, I understand what this is about now. Oh, I know what it is. And now I can do something that eventually will work. And when it does, I, oh, I get it. The reason why all of these happened was because of this chain of events that I can now explain. And I can now defend. So talk to me a little bit about the, the mindset of future judgment. What does, what does that mean to you? And then how can we employ that in our day-to-day -day work as data scientists? Future judgment to me is, you know, as I kind of alluded to before, you do something. And there's some things that when you do it, you'll know right away, is it right or wrong? So I'm not talking about that. That's like sort of real-time feedback. I'm talking about the decision that you make that we won't know this is the right decision until years from now. And earlier I talked about it in terms of leadership. That happens a lot in leadership. You're giving this advice on how to, how to advance your career, right? Right now I'm doing a podcast and giving people advice and they don't know if that's the right advice until years from now when they look back and I'm so glad I did X, Y, and Z, right? I'm so glad I built trust early on in my career. It was so important. You want, and that applies, so, so that's in the leadership uh, sort of aspect. And that, that happens also in your work, right? You might be building a model. Well, that model, you're doing research on this model. It's got to go into production. It's got to go into testing. It's got to go into that. Depending on the maturity of the project, maybe the maturity of the company, hey, that might go into production in a month, or it might go into real production in a year. And at that time, you'll be sort of judged on decisions you had made early on. But there's this mindset, right? And to some extent, if you want to take the lazy way out, you can just say, ah, oh, you know, by that time I'll be gone. By that time I'm on another project, I'll be at another company. Um, these people won't be reporting to me anymore. Anything can happen. But you know, I don't like to, to live with that kind of a mindset, right? That's not, not my philosophy. I want to know that I want people to look back long after I'm gone and say, wow, that, that decision that was made early on that nobody had appreciated, 
that turned out to be really critical down the road that or, or in the leadership realm, right? That advice that I received, it sounded so trivial when I was listening to it. And I kind of took it kind of casually, but it turned out to have deep consequences in the, in the rest of my career. And that's what I like, right? I just like that little game of somebody looking back years from now and saying, I don't know where that guy is, but you know, what he said turned out to be right. And it would have taken years for me to figure that out. I love that, man. That's absolutely beautiful. I've worked in other organizations, obviously. And when you have, like when you're writing code at the top, we'll usually put who was authored by whatever. And I always wonder if somebody down the line is looking back like, damn, Harpreet Sahota did some awesome work, man. This guy, we're still using his code. Still like exactly. you know, that, that kind exactly. of feeling, right? That's, so that's, that's kind what of, you want. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's the approach you should take when you're, when you're doing your work, like take a real craftsman approach to it, build something that's going to last even, even if it's just a bit of code. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I've seen it the other way too. Right. You know, the tech community, depending on wh- where you, where you work and where you live, right? Like I live in San Diego, I work in San Diego and the tech community, the data science community here is, is quite small. So we're spread out across a, a, a limited number of companies around here. And once in a while, I'll hear funny stories about one of my peers had moved on to another company where one of our VPs used to work. And now they're delving into that code of that VP that that person had written years ago. And, <laughs> you know, we had, I had looked up to this VP for so long, maybe. And then now that I see some comments that people had made of his old code that I'm thinking, oh, wow. <laughs> I don't want people to look back at my old code like that. I want them to look back and say, yeah, continue following this person because even his early code uh, was good and was well-documented and made logical sense. I I dig it, man. I dig it. So kind of shifting gears a little bit here, um, how important is agile and scrum methodology for data science teams? And how have you noticed it? play out for data science teams yeah you know i i think it's important but i don't i don't know if it's it's this grand shift in like this grand permanent shift in how we're going to do things going forward i mean, i i do see it as a new idea and very interesting and and i'm all for it uh, before when i first joined i was unsure right i wasn't that skeptical but i was just unsure about well, how is this how is this going to work because normally as a data scientist well, as a scientist in general, uh, you get a problem and you work on it, you do some research and it's, it's a very long process. And there's not this idea of, and at this, you know, I couldn't describe to you, well, this, I want to do this and then I want to do that. And then I'm going to do that. This is going to take this much time. This is going to take that much time. This is going to take this much time. And then you're going to get the result in a month or in six months, uh, which a lot of, a lot of the principles, oh, not, not, I don't want to say the principles because people can argue a lot about what the principles are. But I can say about the mechanics, right? The, the way that we're doing things. We're writing these Jira tickets. We're saying it should take this much time. We're estimating work. And then at the end of the sprints, we're presenting the work that we had done. So at first, I was skeptical about that because I was thinking, how could you know beforehand? You haven't even touched the data. Now we're talking about, I'm going to build a model in this amount of time. That doesn't sound right. But I've learned that, well, you could adjust for it. Well, I've learned a few. Okay, one is that you can adjust for it. Another is that if you want to be part of an integrated team, then the software engineers are definitely doing something similar. And so are you going to say, well, these group, the engineers are going to do it this way using Agile, but the scientists, you can go ahead and do your research on the side. Or do you want to say everybody's doing Agile together and that the scientists are going to adjust things as 
as needed, but are still sort of same part of the same process and part of the same team, part of the same standards. So that has benefits on its own. So I, I found that you know it's not as bad as I thought, and you know I I think it works fine for a an early stage a data science project, right? Which is what my my most of my career is, is about this early stage thing. We're trying to get an MVP out. You're the data scientist. You do the data science, but you may have to do the other things. So uh, everything can be broken down into Jira tickets. It works really well when you're trying to do a lot of engineering work. It may not work out so well when you're doing uh, the science work, but you can make it work out, right? So you can write a ticket that says, you know, I'm going to research this aspect of things, and I'm just going to spend five Jira points on it, for example. And at the end of that ticket, you might say, well, I did the research, and I'm going to write another three-point ticket to finish to, to, to follow up on this kind of thing. And I think that as long as you understand that, oh, okay. You're doing science, and that's sort of allowed. Even though we're, you know, maybe at and the engineering side, they're supposed to say, "Well, I'm done with this work, and I can prove it to you. I can show you. I can do a, dem a demonstration for you, a demo. I can run the commands for you, and look, it, it works just as I said, right? Or I'm putting this new button on the GUI. It's going to cost me five zero points. I do the work. I can show you. Here's the new button. And I see the new button. You're right. It's there. And, and you know, that's sort of it. Uh, but we, as as long as you, we can have the flexibility and adjust the the agile process to the work that we're doing as scientists, then I think it'll work out fine. And uh, it's it's a to me, it's a totally fine way of of doing things. Now, I've also heard, you know, even within the, the same company, right? Other people have said, oh, in the past we did we did a agile, and what I did was I had a thirteen point ticket, and I just said. I'm researching. That's like that. That's it. That's the ticket. And I mean, that's kind of an extreme way to do it. Uh, and I would say, well, if that's how you feel, if you've put in the thought about how's the best way to do this, and you feel that you know that's the best way to do it, you've read the counter arguments about how there might be a better way to do it. And, and if you still come with that conclusion, I don't want to prescribe what's the right way to do any kind of work. And I would say, if, if you've if you've read the philosophies and you feel like this is the best way to do it, then that's you know do it that way. So, so for me, I, I don't feel. I think the question was, do I feel you know it, that it's really important, or how important do I feel is it right? And I, I feel like it's as long as you've thought about the arguments that are made for doing things in an agile fashion, and if you agree with them, you're doing them, and you can back that up, then that's that's fantastic. Uh, if you totally don't agree with them, you come up with solid arguments as to why, and you're producing results that are appropriate to the phase of the project that you're in, then, you know, that's great too. What's up artists? Be sure to join the free open mastermind Slack community by going to bit.ly.com forward slash artists of data science. It's a great environment for us to talk all things data science, to learn together, to grow together. And I'll also keep you updated on the open bi-weekly office hours that I'll be hosting for our community. Check out the show on Instagram at the artists of data science. Follow us on Twitter at artists of data. Look forward to seeing you all there. Shifting gears yet again, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about grit, mindset, drive. What do these qualities mean to you? How do you think other data scientists can cultivate these qualities in themselves? That's an interesting question. The cultivate part is interesting, right? Because I don't know if I ever spent any time cultivating grit, right? It's just something that you know I feel like I had, but maybe didn't recognize until later on in my life. Just even things like riding up, learning how to ride a bike. Okay, so the way I grew up, I I just learned it on my own. I got on a bike and I fell a ton of times. And in my younger years, I would blame all sorts of things as to why I fell. I would blame this, I would blame that, but I always just kept going. I always thought like, well, even though the world's against me and 
you know, the forces that be don't want me to ride this bike. I'm still going to push ahead because I'm stronger than that too. Right. I'm, you know, I'm even stronger than that. I'm, I'm just going to forge ahead and eventually I'm going to get, I didn't even think eventually I, I, I will just keep going until, until it was done. Right. <laughs> so that was just always something that I felt in me. And I didn't, to me, that was just a natural way of doing things. I didn't put a label on it and I didn't know that it was called grit and that it would be helpful later on in my career until you know, it actually happened. My philosophy around that is I, I think if you, in, if in all aspects of your life, you, you show grit, if you are willing to live with the, 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 the setbacks, the pain and the work that's required in any endeavor, if you understand that life is not designed to help you, nor is it designed to hurt you, but you will feel hurt a lot and you will feel helped a little and, and these things will, will, will happen. And if you just say, oh yeah, that's just a normal way of life. Uh, one thing that helped me is at one, one point earlier in my career, uh, like I forgot what it was specifically, but I think it was something like I was training a model and it didn't work out for like some ridiculous reason about, I don't know, maybe, maybe the segments of the population that was the most important ended up having the dirtiest data and something like that. I forgot what it was. Right. And I went to the VP and I said, this totally sucks. And I, you know, the, the segment that I need the most has the worst data. And you know, this is terrible. What, what bad luck I'm having. Then he just looked at me and he said, of course. I said, what do you mean? Of course. Like this is, this is just a, a chance. He said, no, no, of course. No, this is, this is life is always like that. This is how life is. <laughs> and his, his mindset of like, Oh, just expect it to be like this was different for me. Uh, I felt, you know, I came in as if I was the victim, right? Like, oh, look, I got bad luck. It, hap it happened to me. Whereas he said, no, no, of course, this, uh, I wouldn't expect it to happen any, any other way. And, you know, it harks back to earlier mentors that I had who had said the same thing about Murphy's Law and how anything that could go wrong, you know, will go wrong. And that's just always the case. And I think you have that mentality that, oh, I'm about to do something that I think is simple. And I expect that everything's going to go wrong. And I know that when the, the struggle or the, the mental difficulty uh, happens when things go wrong, I just know that's not something that I'm going to sit and pay a lot of attention to. And that's just something that I'm going to recognize that's there. And then I'm just going to move on. Uh, so there's a book uh, I read called Search Inside Yourself. Chad May Mung, I think, that, I think that was the author's name. He was a person from, from Google. And he went on to be an advocate for meditation of all things. And he talked about that saying, don't feed the monsters, meaning there's going to be bad things that happen and thoughts that are repeating in your head all the time, which is very typical for a personality like I am. And probably a lot of data scientists are where you do something bad and you just replay that bad moment all the time. And he said, well, if you have monsters and you feed them, they'll keep coming back because you're feeding the monsters. You don't feed them. They may not go away, but they'll be there and they're just there. And that's it. It's kind of, I don't know, it's like a Zen interpretation, or I don't, I don't know how to, how to describe that, right? But, you know, they're the monsters, they're there, and they're just there, that's it. So I, I think about that in terms of the difficulties that happen when you do a project, right? Okay, you got a setback, and it totally bothers you, and you hate it. And in the younger years, I would have said, I hate this. And I would have thought about, why do I hate it? And I thought about, woe is me, why did that happen to me? Why, why is life always like this? And who designed this thing? You know, why, why is the world against it? But now I just see a difficult thing happen. And I don't feed the monsters. I don't think about it. I know it's there. I don't try to get rid of it. I don't try to push it away. It's there. I don't feed it. It's like my, my, my pet, right? It's just, we're in this together. Me, this bad luck that I have, some of this good luck, we're all in this together. And this is all part of it. This is to be expected. 
I love it, man. It reminds me a little bit of that quote. I think it was Einstein. The most important decision you can make is whether you live in a friendly universe or a hostile universe. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I was wondering if you can share some advice or insight with people who might be dealing with the imposter syndrome. And I think you might have touched on that a little bit about not feeding the monster, but uh, yeah. But yeah. Oh man. Yeah. I, I think the imposter syndrome is something that you'll, you'll have all throughout. And part depends, right? Some people, they feel very confident in themselves and they you know, I, I'm the hotshot and maybe they are right. Maybe they have a fancy title or they're a part of a, 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 a successful venture and they've got tens of millions of dollars and they say, Hey, I'm not an imposter. I'm the real thing here. Uh, but I think most of us are going to feel like, yeah, maybe I'm, I'm the imposter. I would say you talk with other people and you find out who else feels this way. You go to meetups, you go, you, you find other data scientists in your area, you ask them about their experience and you can measure yourself that way. You know, in some sense, you're being more of a scientist by doing that. You're asking, Hey, what do you do day to day? And I'm only spending this much time building models. Are you spending more time? Cause I get the feeling that I'm spending way, I'm not spending nearly enough time that I need to be spending more time and that a real data scientist would be building models all day. And then they might, they might surprise you and say, no, no, I'm, I'm doing the same thing you are. I, I'm building these reports and finding this ROI and BI stuff and finding averages and responding, putting out fires. And then you might feel, oh, wow, you're doing the same things I am. That's, that sounds cool. And every time you find the real deal, and I, I always find them, and I, and I always say, oh, that person, I think that person's doing the real thing. That's an actual data scientist over there. And then you get to talk to them and you may find out that they're not actually a data scientist. Or you learn that... It depends on the field. That's something that I've, I've recently been, been talking a lot more and paying a lot more attention about, right? Uh, somebody who might be in, let's say, machine vision. Now, that's a field that there's tools. There's a, you know, maybe a clear objective. Uh, you're going to do deep learning. You're probably going to do convolutional neural networks. And you're going to do these in maybe GPUs. And it's all laid out there. And you do that. And then, you know, you feel good about yourself. Hey, I'm doing deep learning. I'm, I'm doing all this stuff. Uh, and then, but if you're in a new project, the way I am, then you should be aware of that. Like, hey, not everybody, not every industry, not every project within a company is going to be that long and established thing. And it's okay. Like, it's also a career path. This whole thing about, well, I take part in new ventures within within companies. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a data scientist. That's a, a new thing. And that I don't think that's being an imposter if you're not doing the classical stuff, right? Credit card fraud is classical. Customer churn is classical. Uh, what else might be, right? Um, recommendation engines are classical. And you might think that I got to be doing those things if I'm really a data scientist, right? So, so you think, you know, that's true. If I'm in a company, in a project that's doing that, then sure, that's maybe I'm a real data scientist. But there's also, I'm in a company that is doing something totally different and is applying data science in a whole new way. Maybe in my case right now, it's to automate customer service. And how do we do that specific to this company that's different than the way the vendors are doing it, which is broader to, to all companies? So, you know, a lot of up and coming data scientists, they, they have in their head that, yeah, we're just building models, doing all this crazy, cool technical stuff all day long. And they tend to focus on that, thinking that that's what really makes, you know, a data scientist a data scientist, which to, to a certain extent it does, right? But what is it that's really going to separate these up and coming data scientists from their competition in terms of um, soft skills? Okay. Yeah, that's a great question. So first I'll, I'll say a little bit about the, the question itself that you had mentioned. Um, people might think that building the models is a data science. And there's this funny gamification that when somebody comes to an interview, like I'm asking about the algorithm, right? Knowing full well that the algorithm I'm spending, you know, a, not as much time as 
say feature engineering or something else, right? But then I asked about, the, because we all feel that you should know about the algorithms if you're a data scientist, that's some sort of a requirement. Uh, so I'm, I'm part of the problem too, right? I asked about that and I'm sure everybody asks about that. Any data science interview that you come in will ask about that. So that, that, that's just a comment on, on the, the question and how it's somehow required still that you know a lot about the algorithms and that that would be all you talk about during interview, but that your real work is really about data cleaning and reporting. Okay, uh, but how do you separate out the various? You know, when I, when I interview people, I just name, mainly focus on, do I feel like this person can think things through? That's a major thing, all right? And what separates is if you had thought through everything that has to do with the work that you're doing, right? So and in, many, in most interviews, I'll pick out something from their resume that they've been working on. And if it's a new college grad, then it could be a class project, that's fine. And then I'll just ask, you know, wacky creative questions about, about that. So if somebody recently interviewed with me and asked, and, and described a project in which they were trying to locate stitches in a heart valve. So you have a picture of a heart valve, or, or I think it was not a heart valve, but maybe uh, some sort of a tissue or something like that. And then there was an operation where you transplant this tissue somewhere else, and then you have these stitches, and we, they were trying to find where are the stitches in this image. And the way these stitches are, right, they, they have to be biocompatible. So they have to act similar to the tissue surrounding them. So you can imagine sometimes they even look like the tissue surrounding them. So it's a challenge to find out uh, how do you find the stitches. I had said, okay, now what if somebody had come in with 100 new Im images and you wanted to know what is the quality? And, and they had labeled them. They had drawn little squares around where the stitches are. And you just wanted to know what is the quality of their labeling, right? That's a very like practical question, nothing to do with any textbook data science that you would work on, but it would require you to think about the problem in a different way. And so then you would have to say, okay, how would I even break that down? And what kind of experiments could I run? What is truth here? Because usually the label is the truth, but you're asking me about validating the label? What the heck is that? And so you have to come up with maybe creative ways and sort of take your best guess where there isn't a prescribed answer. And I, I do things like that. And I think successful data scientists can think through any kind of problem surrounding data science, not just the core problem, right? Little funny things like that. Or I may have, may, I may have gone in another direction and, I, and they said that they had used some neural networks. Sometimes I ask a funny question that says, what if I took all the nodes of your neural network and I just lined them up one after the other? So if you have 100 nodes, I just have 100 nodes, 100 hidden layers, each one node, what would happen there? And then after they answer that, and I said, oh, what if I took those 100 nodes and said, okay, one hidden layer, 100 nodes long, what would happen there? And then I would say, okay, what if I did that? Then I did something crazy. And I said, okay, I'll just 50 nodes, I'm just going to connect them to the output. And these other 50, I'm going to connect them to the input. And what, what happens there? Right? So there's some wacky things that, in this case, not practical. So the first one was practical. The second case was not practical. But it was something that is so far from what you would normally think about that it forces you to really go back to the fundamentals and say, what is a hidden node and why, why do we need them? What are they doing? So that I can get to explaining or guessing as to what would, what would happen if I did something totally unreasonable, like, like connecting them in a funny way, right? So, because when I do that, then I can see how they're thinking through the problem, how they're breaking down the problem and how they're applying fundamentals, right? Because if they don't know anything about what is a hidden node and what does it do, then you can't even start to even tease apart how, how to answer this kind of a question. It's really, really interesting, man. I, I like that line of line of questioning because, you know, I've got a lot of mentees and they're always asking, oh, what should I study next? What should I study next? And I'm like, dude, if you're ever at a loss of things to study, go back to the basics and make sure you have those down pat because the, the, 
the fundamentals are the springboard for everything else. So you need to have all that stuff down pat. Yeah. Um, yeah. You can do that. You yeah. can run a bunch of experiments. That's another way you can do things. Mm-hmm. You run experiments and then you would, when things don't come out right, then you got to go back and do the same process. Like things didn't come out right. Why didn't they come out right? And then you have to know all the different parts of the system to, to have guesses as to which, where in the system did things go, go wrong? Uh, one of my, okay, so the uh, software engineering lead and manager that I work with, he had made, uh, he had broken down debuggers into two types. He said, there's like the, the imagination debuggers and there's the, like the brute force debuggers. Not that there's two separate types, but you know, this is just two separate. If you were to break it down into two categories, you would kind of break it down like this, right? And some sort of a, you know, perfect sphere universe model. You want to know, do you have an imagination debugger that comes and thinks about, oh, I think the problem is in this part of the code. Because I can imagine if it was in another part of the code, then this would have happened or that would have happened. Uh, okay. In other ways, I'm just going to step through this and that works. So you can, you can study that way too, right? You can say, okay, I don't know. I, I don't know what to do here, um, but I'm not going to give up. I'm just going to step through every line of code or, you know, and figure it out. And the first time we did it, we stepped through everything. And the second time you did it, you knew a little bit more about the system. You're like, I'm pretty sure it's in this part. I'm just going to step through this part, right? And you keep doing that and there's no real shortcut to this, right? You keep doing that. You put in the work and eventually when something breaks, you can imagine. You're like, I've, I've debugged this line by line so many times. I bet it's in this line of code right here. Not not the line, but I bet it's in this area right here. And you go up and then you you, you know what to do. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to you know put a print statement. I'm going to put a breakpoint. I'm going to uh, engineer the code so that it's easier to to find out what the uh, it's easier to sort of plug into, right? So uh, instead of one function that does a bunch of stuff, I have, you know I have different functions, and I can end the code here. I can end the code there. So I can engineer things differently too. Uh, so you can go about uh, that way, right? But bringing going back to what should you do, right? Um, you should learn how to think through code. How can you learn how to think through code? Well, either you have a built-in imagination, you can, you can guess, and or, and it's probably and, and you have gone through a lot of iterations of code and you kind of understand the process of how to do that. Okay, therefore, you can solve issues when they come up. The issues that you face in real time will never be the ones that you've already thought about because lo and behold, you've already thought about those. You've coded around all that stuff. Something from left field comes in and you got new labels that you've never seen before. Or you've got a bug where somebody had wired the neural network in some way by accident. And now you kind of know how to debug that, how to think through that, right? So it turns out that all these wacky things that I asked for in interviews come up in in the, the, the realm of work. Last question here before we jump into a lightning round. Uh, what's the one thing you want people to learn from your story? Oh, man, I haven't even told my story yet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, to learn from this, what I've said bef- uh, up up until now, I, what is the? That's a nice question. I would say just to uh, expect the the good and the bad things that will happen with you. Uh, I think the the highlight would be the idea of the monsters. So it's you, it's the bad things that happen to you and the good things that happen to you. You're on this one car together, and you're going on this trip. Don't kick them out of the car. Don't do nothing. They're just with you. You just go go with them with you. Just expect that. It's not just you going and there's external forces or whatever. It's just you, the good and the bad. We're all here together and we go through the trip. I love it, man. I love it. Yeah, that concept of that monster, I, I've got to check out that book, man. Um, so I'm definitely going to be, be looking for that. That really, really yeah, totally. resonated with me. Um, so let's jump into lightning round here real quick. Uh, what's your data science superpower? 
oh, whew, data science superpower, uh, willing to do non-data science work when needed, but at a reasonable amount of time. If it's the whole thing, then eventually I'm going to have to do some real, real data science work. But we're willing to once in a while, when needed, go go and do any kind of other work. What's a topic, academic or otherwise, outside of data science that you think every data scientist should spend some time researching up on? Hmm. Outside of data science, I mean, the obvious answers would be like business or something like that. But if you say data science is, is all of that, then if I really go outside, you know, maybe research on body language. You know, you're explaining things to, th- to people and get a feeling about, do they understand what you're saying? <laughs> Because a lot of times as a data scientist, you're talking to people who may not be data scientists. They may not, they, they may, you know, they don't want to say right there, okay, stop what you're saying. I don't understand any of it, but they may not. And maybe if you read a little bit more about body language or not knew more, but paid more attention to that, maybe you would pick up cues and you could stop yourself and say, hey, um, do you have any questions about what I just said? All right. And maybe go from there. What's the number one book, fiction or nonfiction or both? Uh, you would recommend our audience read and your most impactful takeaway from it? Ooh, number one book. There's so many. Which one? Fiction or nonfiction, right? There is a book that I read. Okay, first, I like, uh, do, I, do I have to choose only one? I probably have to choose you, one. You can, you can, no, you, you can, you, I'll let you, I'll let you get, get two. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, I'll just choose one. So I liked uh, Case in Point, which is a book that I read it's 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 a an interview book and it's a book that you would read to get a consulting job like at bcg mckinsey or bain one of those and it breaks down how to do the case study interviews and my big takeaway there was just how to break down any problem into its individual any business problem into its individual pieces and attack each of them individually and it just goes through various cases and says like okay so-and-so company is trying to analyze why subscriptions have gone down for this particular month. And then you're okay. How, how, do, how do I begin to tackle why subscriptions have gone down? Uh, so, so they have that. I think the author was Constantino. I, I forgot what the author is, but I can get offline and try to find it. I don't think many people would give you that answer. It's not a, it's not a bestseller. I don't think at all, but it's just something that uh, when I was get, trying to get into consulting and I had gone through a lot of case study interview, mock interviews that I found that book was pretty cool. Definitely, man. I, I'm going to get that book right after this. Um, so if we can somehow get a magical telephone that allowed you to contact 20-year-old Brandon, what would you tell him? I would say just keep keep doing things that you think are interesting. Just keep doing that path because 20-year-old Brandon was not doing data science, right? I was doing bioengineering. I was making guesses about the future, getting all of those wrong. I was uh, just studying things that I thought were interesting. I was studying things that I thought were the future bioengineering, which maybe is the future, but I, I, it didn't, it wasn't as big as I thought it, it might be. And then in the end, I went into this data science, which at the time, at that time would never have even existed. Right. So I would just say, whatever's interesting today, study that. But you know, interesting is a key, right? Don't study something that you think is when I was 20, you know, computers and Silicon Valley was already around. So I could have just gone straight to computers at that time and, and done computer engineering. At that time, though, I didn't sort of feel it in my heart. I, I didn't. I felt that I wanted to do something, something else. And eventually, I, you know, I'm in that field anyways, right? But at least I got to go through and study what I like to study, and gave me a foundation of how to think of the world. Uh, foundation meaning because I learned all sorts of stuff about how, um, like, I don't know, how to solve mechanical, like biomechanical problems, or 
uh, there's a sphere sitting on a ramp at 20 degrees and at what speed is that sphere going to roll down this ramp and you know how how to do those calculations and it and i just even though it wasn't data science and it wasn't computer engineering i could still use that skill set in the field that i'm doing now and, and it also the, taught me how to like enjoy things right like hey enjoy this work and enjoy that work but if, if from the jump from the get-go i said oh i'm i'm in college and at the time it was computer science but today it might be data science hey data science is you know makes money i'm going to do data science and you do that for a little while and then and then you say, you know what else makes money? This other thing makes money. I'm going to do that. And now all of your decisions are based on, hey, what makes money? And you're at sort of a disadvantage because you're competing with people who, who like this stuff and who enjoy this work. And, you know, my guess is that those people would do better. Yeah, because you have to, in order to excel in anything, man, you got to operate out of that place of happiness and joy. That's when the growth in anything will occur, right? You're not facing any resistance. You're allowing yourself to thrive and blossom. Um, so that's great advice. Um, now, what's the best advice you've ever received? I mean, one thing that the first one that pops into my head is something that I repeat a lot is I went to a VP and I explained, here's the whole situation. And he said, you got to give options. Just come to me and say, option A, here's the pros and cons. Option B, here's the pros and cons. And here's option C. You know, which one do you want? And as I thought about that, and I think about what I see in the movies about how somebody might go up to the general and say, hey, general, a lot of stuff is happening in the field. I could do A or I could do B. Which one, where should I go? And the general would say, okay, you should do A. That's it. Then you go back and you, you execute A. I, I think that's, that's something that I often tell people around me and people are, you know, it's just a nice way to interact with uh, stakeholders, right? With business people, especially as a data scientist. Uh, and like any scientist, you want to go into the details and you want to go into the interesting myths and stuff. But what people really want to know is, they want to make a decision. Hey, should it, should it be A? Should it be B? Should it be C? Should it be a combination? And what are the implications for each of those? Right? What are the costs and what are, what are the benefits? That's really, really good advice. What motivates you? <laughs> what motivates me? Oh, boy. What motivates? Oh, okay. What motivates me is the idea that I'm going to do something that I'm proud of myself. Right? Not something that I hope somebody else likes, not something that I think somebody else would like. I do something that I say, hey, that's cool. Even if nobody else notices what this thing is, like I'm so happy about the work that just happened here. Uh, and, you know, to, it, it all ties together, right? Hey, maybe it'll be five years until somebody realizes this was a good decision. But yeah. right now, I'm, I'm happy with that. And for me, that, that's the, the, the nice thing. That's, that's what motivates me at the individual level. Now, me as a leader, what motivates me is watching people grow, right? People who choose to, to follow me, watching them grow, uh, making sure that, that they're getting all the advice they need and that one day they're gonna look back and say, and tell the story of how an early mentor, mentee or, or manager even, uh, basically an early leader that they had chosen to follow, uh, how that person impacted their life in a positive way. And they might tell their kids, right? And their kids don't know me, but I have this, thought in my head that, Hey, one day they might do that. And you know, that would be cool. I love it, man. Especially the, the thing about doing something because you want to feel proud of doing it. I think that's yeah. definitely a driving force behind me creating this podcast. Like, I don't care who listens to it. I listen to my own fucking podcast because there's so many cool guests on here and I'm, you know, I learned so much from, from everybody that comes on my show. And it's something that I'm truly proud of making. And so, yeah, that, that really resonated with me. What song do you have on repeat right now? <laughs> Oh man, I have a ton of songs. What song do I have to repeat? Oh, okay. Uh, 
funnily enough, we're doing all this social distancing right now from a distance by Bette Midler. I have that on repeat because uh, I, <laughs> I'm trying to sort of keep, so Bette Midler, I think she also plays a role in one of the movies where she's trying to keep the troops entertained or, or what have you. So I'm trying to keep my troops entertained, my people entertained. And one idea that I thought of early on was I might try to uh, like sing a song for the group at one time, if it gets to that point that they would need that. So I, I called up one of the people I work with and I said, Hey, you want to do this song? If you do the guitar, I'll do the vocals. We'll try to do from a distance. Cause you know, social distancing from a distance, it kind of matches up. Right. And, and then, so we have this little side project going on. I haven't decided if I'm going to do it yet, cause it's a big step to, to be singing in front of your group. <laughs> but I figured, you know, if we needed that, that uplifting or even that funny moment, right. Where everybody's laughing at you because it, it, you know, it went so terrible wrong or something if we needed that i have that in the the uh, the tank uh and ready ready to use it's in reserve i hope this goes viral on linkedin (laughs) (laughs) i hope not (laughs) uh so so uh how can people connect with you where could they find you uh, LinkedIn is, is a good place to find me just brandon quatch uh, if you should say that with maybe teradata or or lytics then that would that would come up Awesome, man. Well, Brandon, thank you. Thank you so, so much for, for being so generous with your time and being on the show today. Uh, I think people are going to learn so much from, from everything that you've said today. So thank you. Thank you. You're very welcome. And I, and I sure hope they do. And if you hear any, uh, any good feedback or any, even any negative feedback, feel free to send that my way. I'd love to, to hear about that. And, uh, you know, we, we, we barely scratched the surface, you know, it's, uh, we didn't get time to talk about a lot of things, but uh, it was enjoyable. Hey, man, well, part two, we'll, we'll bring you back on for part two, man, for sure. Yeah, let's do that. I want it to be, I want it to be uh, demand driven, right? So yeah. if enough people say they want a part two, then we'll do a part two. I'm not going to force part two on anybody. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we, we should do the part two just because we want to do it, man. There we go. <laughs> hey, that's, that's, there you got, you put it back on. You're right. Let's do part two, put it in the archive. And one day when people say, I want to see it. They're going to say, oh, we already did it. Because we yeah. so much that we did it anyways. But since you want to see it, here it is. <laughs> right on, man. Well, look, man, thank you again for your time. Really appreciate it. No problem. Yeah, I, I appreciate it too. So. Awesome.